Hello, Robin Hilton here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we always love hearing how important shows like All Songs Considered and Tiny Desks are to our listeners. Yes, when you give to your local NPR station, it helps make everything we do possible. And you don't have to do it over the phone. Go to donate.npr.org music to give online. Well, thank you. And remember, give before the end of the year. For NPR Music, you're connected to All Songs Considered. I'm Bob Boylan. December 17th, 2020 marks the 250th birthday of Ludwig van Beethoven. On this edition of All Songs Considered, we celebrate the composer's genius with a conversation that may enlighten those already familiar with Beethoven's music, but may also shine a light for those only familiar with the Joining me for this conversation is composer and author Jan Swafford. He wrote a roughly 1,000-page biography titled Beethoven, Anguish and Triumph. Jan has a way of speaking about this music that helps people like me, the less knowledgeable, understand this man and his music. And my guiding light for this conversation and producer of other Beethoven things on the NPR Music site, including three Tiny Desk concerts, is NPR Music's Tom Heisinger. And we kick this all off with a burst of energy from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Kicking off with some super energy, Beethoven Symphony Number no. Seven, uh, the coda. Oh, thank you, folks. Good night. I think that's all we need to hear <laughs> for the whole show. I mean, this has proved to me that Beethoven um, can really rock hard with the best of them, and just just all this driving energy. And it reminds me, Bob, of of being a kid. This is the music that I'd grab a pencil to and wave my arms around in the air because it's just that that energy that I think that is so uh, irresistible. You know, this music was written 208 years ago. And I was trying to imagine something that came out this year that would be celebrated in the year 2228. And honestly, I don't see the sustaining power of our current cup of music. Why has Beethoven's music remained so popular over all these years? Well, to begin with, the Seventh Symphony is just happens to be a piece that is just kicking butt. That's what he intended to do in this piece, and that's what he did. And that coda of the finale that he just played is one of those cases of Beethoven's ability to take a maximum of intensity and excitement in a piece, beyond, and you figure it can't go any further, and then he takes it further. <laughs> He had a remarkable ability to do that. For In terms of why Beethoven has remained so popular for so long, and was really, when he died, he was a mythical figure in his own time. There are many reasons for that, but one is just, I think in his music, he intended to be emotionally powerful and individual and transparent. 
I think he wanted his, the emotions in his music to kind of be in your face. But that, that emotional uh, strength in Beethoven is surely the, the source of his popularity all these years. For me, too, it's this the, the diversity in his moods and his storytelling and his feelings. It's that music gets right to the heart of things, you know, like the opening of the pastoral sonata that we'll hear a little bit of next. It's very unlike what we heard in the Seventh Symphony, that kind of heaven-storming, almost violent approach. And then the other side of Beethoven's music that I think is appealing to so many people is the also the transcendent kind of music that we hear, especially late in his career. But this movement, especially, where you have this kind of droning, almost like timpani strokes in the left hand and the flowing melody in the right hand, this is just as lovely and carefree as Beethoven gets. And I think here, with all the little murmuring inner voices, Beethoven really makes this piano sing, and you just let the beauty wash over you. And that's still another side of Beethoven that is um, sometimes lost on people. How about if I play uh, some of the pastoral? This sonata is a great favorite of mine. This is music of wonderful naivete and tenderness and lyricism. And um, that is something that he could do as well as anything else. The Heaven Storming Beethoven is only one of so many emotional locales and territories that he was master of. That opening is an incredible example of what you could do with two chords over a pedal of the bass. Let's talk about the early years for a minute. Uh, he was. Raised in Germany by a father who is also a musician. At what age did he start writing music? And did living in Bonn affect the music he was composing? Oh, absolutely. The first piece we know of is age 10, which his new teacher, Nefa, had published. Actually, there's some little piano variations. He was probably composing or improvising before that. There's a story that his father caught him playing his own, improvising on violin at one point and said, you're not supposed to do that yet. You have to learn your, you know, practice your scales. You know, you can do that later. Two years later, he wrote some, a series of four piano sonatas that are a much bigger deal. Two years after that, he wrote some piano quartets that are so advanced for age 14 that when they were discovered after his death, even some of his great supporters said, he could not, a 14-year-old could not have written these pieces, but he did. And then his father, Jan, his father was a, a town musician, kind of well-liked, but ultimately failed, and was kind of one of these fathers, right, that liked to parade his son around. Well, he was well-liked partly because he was drunk half the time and, and a lot of fun, <laughs> apparently. He gave great parties. He was, on the one hand, pretty brutal with the kid. So Johann von Beethoven 
raised his son in music from about age four or five with with beatings and locking him in the basement and dragging him out of bed in the middle of the night to make him play. And a neighbor remembered little Ludwig standing on a stool to reach the keyboard and crying as his father loomed over him. And, you know, these kind of stories. But, and those are the famous stories about Dad. But it's also true that Dad really had a lot to do with his son's development and hired better teachers for him soon and really kind of showed him off all over the whole area and put on house concerts and, you know, things like that. He made sure that everybody knew that his kid was a prodigy, which he was. And then when he's about 22 years old, he makes a move from Bonn to Vienna. Well, that's because Joseph Haydn looked at some scores of Beethoven, heard him play, and realized that this kid was just something extraordinary. And he basically said, come to Vienna and study with me. So that's why Beethoven went to Vienna at 22. So let's play something around this period in his early 20s in Vienna. What was he making? What did it sound like? Well, Jan, you, in your book, you talk about the Pathetique Sonata. That's the Sonata number 8 of Beethoven from around 1797 or so. And you mentioned that it's the first work of Beethoven's to bid for the term epical. And I think what you're getting at, that there's some kind of new voice for Beethoven in this particular sonata. These pieces that he was writing in his mid-20s have voices all over the place, and only some of them are ones that sort of leap out and say Beethoven. And of all those, the pathetique is the most remarkable. It was simply a musical voice and an intensity of emotion and, and really an intensity of grief in music that had never been heard before. I mean, stuff like that is said all the time, but... This piece was just in your face remarkable. It see, I, I've said that it, it was not like an expression of grief. It was like grief itself, the pathetic. In relation to that introduction of the first movement, I'll just say that a student of mine told me once that when she was in high school, every time she broke up with a boyfriend, she'd go home and play that piece. <laughs> so when did Beethoven start writing uh, bigger pieces? When did he start writing for the orchestra? So he started writing orchestra music. He wrote a piano concerto as a teenager and apparently was effective. So by the time he got to Vienna and wrote his first symphony, um, he, was, he had a fair amount of experience with the orchestra already, and he, he basically knew what he was doing. 
Jan, in your book, you talk about the first symphony a little bit and say that it's almost like Beethoven clearing his throat a little bit uh, yeah. in, in, in the symphonic realm. But the, the second symphony that we'll hear a little bit of now, that's quite different. And there's a, a hint of comedy in it, too, especially in the, the final movement. The first symphony he sort of put together in a hurry as, a, as to end a concert that he was giving in Vienna, his first big concert. The second symphony was is huge. It's it's a big, ambitious symphony. He really wanted to make a statement. And I think the kind of overall tone here that dominates is basically an echo of comic opera. This is a comic symphony, which doesn't mean it doesn't have some poignant moments, but the finale is absolutely hilarious. It begins with this thing that I've always wondered if it's not the cry of a jackass or maybe a kind of full orchestra hiccup. And the joke is that you say this giant hiccup can't possibly be the theme of the movement. It's absurd, but it is. That's the joke. And he he treats it as a theme. He develops it. It keeps coming back and so forth. The other thing is, though, that this is not yet Beethoven's mature symphonic voice. That's He discovered that in his next symphony. So we can hear some of the second symphony of Beethoven. And I love those little hiccups you call them, Jan. Those are hilarious. One way to look at this finale is that it's something like a Mozart comic opera overture on steroids, which tells us something about Beethoven in general, that he was, in a way, a traditionalist. He's been called a revolutionary from the beginning, but really he founded everything he did in the past, mainly Haydn and Mozart. But he took what Haydn and Mozart did and did it more. If they were comic and, you know, goofy, he became manically goofy. People often say that Beethoven's life can be divided into three clear periods, uh, an early, middle, and late. So his life and his music, are they really that easily sectioned in the way we think about it? Scholars have been trying to get rid of those three divisions for probably 150 years, but the reality is that they're true. (laughs) And... (laughs) But it's not like the first period is is apprenticeship because he never released any apprentice pieces. The first period, he was already a master, but he was not settled into his mature voice yet, I guess is the simple way to put it. But he himself said around 1801, 1802, he said, I'm not satisfied with anything I've done. And from now on, I'm going to take a new path. Well, 
a lot of people say things like that. You know, I'm going to start losing weight. I'm going to. But when Beethoven said things like that, he meant them and he acted on them. And the result of what he called the new path that I'm about to start was what we call the middle period, which started with some piano sonatas and then the Eroica. And that middle period is named Heroic for the Eroica Symphony, but with the caveat that not every piece in the middle period is heroic by any means. Most of them aren't. But it is what I call this full maturity. One other thing we should talk about, uh, we're going to hear some of the, the groundbreaking Eroica Symphony in a second, but there are some other things, Jan, that emerge in this period of his life. And, of course, the the main one, which is a fact that even people who don't know a lot about Beethoven know, and that is that he began to go deaf and, and he began to have some other health issues. And there's even a, a letter that he wrote to his brothers that outlines his mood, which is really kind of at the depths of despair. That letter that he wrote to his brothers and apparently never mailed, we call the Heiligenstadt Testament because it was written in the village of Heiligenstadt, is his crash. You know, when you have a disability, and his was deafness, but he had a lot of other troubles as well. His gut was a mess, for one. You tend to have a period of deni- of hope, and then denial, and then anger, and then you tend to have a crash. And you either recover or you don't. Then that letter represents his crash, where he realized that he was going to go deaf and there was nothing he could do about it, and that he was going to be in a lot of pain, physical pain in his life, and there was nothing he could do about that either. It's been called half suicide note and half defiance. And I think that's a good description. He had every reason to kill himself, really. Uh, In the operative sentence, I always choke up when I talk about this. He said, I just can't imagine leaving the world until I've done everything I know I'm capable of. And he was just beginning to discover the the real depth and breadth of what he was capable of at at this point. So he said, I'm going to live for art. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be wretched, which he was. But I'm going to live for my art. So whether the Eroica really begins the middle period or not doesn't really matter. We should listen to it. And it was really like no other before in terms of uh, length and design and sheer boldness and we've we've already heard some tremendous driving energy already in his music but here is some more it's from the opening allegro movement many people didn't understand it when they first heard it some of his critics mentioned that the symphony lost itself in lawlessness so let's uh let's dip into the first movement of beethoven's third symphony from 1803 Thank you. 
It's worth mentioning that this piece was not called Eroica until several years later, after the premiere, when he, Beethoven published it. Every last note of this piece was written under the title Bonaparte. In other words, this is a piece, a symphony about Napoleon Bonaparte. And in doing that, Beethoven, Bonaparte at this point was perceived as a progressive who was going to bring better governments and better laws across Europe by means of conquering one country after another. Uh, and Beethoven, in, in calling, writing a piece of what we call a program piece entirely about Napoleon, was he wanted to attach himself to the most progressive ideals of the time. Somebody who knew Beethoven in these years said his favorite subject of conversation was politics. So he really was very attuned to what was going on in the world. And the other thing is that he wanted to attach his music to the most powerful and important man in the world at that time. And by that, he was saying, you know, I'm not just an entertainer. I'm going to be part of history. I'm not fooling around here. I'm not just trying to amuse people in, in courts and salons. I am attaching my music to history. Jan, we were talking earlier about Beethoven's kind of incomparable skill for raising music to what seems like this this peak in, of excitement and tension. And then, you know, you don't think you can get any higher, and then he just puts it into fifth gear and blows you away. And that's what we have here at the very end of another piece from this heroic middle period, the Appassionata Sonata. That's his 23rd piano sonata. This is from about 1804, 1805. Just listen to the last part of the last movement in the performance here by Igor Levitt. It will... Um, it, your jaw will be dropped. <laughs> can you yeah, can you all give me a sense of what the world of music listeners thought of something like that or I just have no idea what percentage of the population got to hear this stuff and well you understand piano sonatas were not played in public in those days ever to I speak didn't know of. that um, so these were played by people at home some of whom were very very good amateurs but people were just blown away. But, you know, we have this idea that because when pieces are really radical, as this one certainly is, um, that it took years for them to be understood and appreciated. That, it's not true at all. What Beethoven was the composer for young romantics who treasured his wildness. When you hear, by the way, this coda of the finale, end of the piece, on a period piano, it sounds like it's tearing the instrument apart. It's like there are splinters flying out of the piano. <laughs> And that's what it's. And he was known for breaking strings. And he was pounding yes. pretty hard, yeah. And that's what it's supposed to sound like. It's just absolutely crazed. Let's put it this way: Beethoven may be the only composer who could really turn it up to eleven. Indeed, indeed. 
I think the thing that the whole world knows uh, these days is bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and at the in the beginning of the Fifth Symphony. Was that true then? Did the general population know his symphonies? And and is that your favorite parts, Tom and? and Jana of the Fifth Symphony. The Eroica, which is one of the most radical symphonies ever written, within two years, the leading music magazine said, this is the greatest symphony ever written. Then about six years later, in a review, they said, well, they played the Eroica, but everybody knows that. That's nothing new. (laughs) (laughs) And the Fifth Symphony, when it first... Uh, It was received by some at the time as just nuts, (laughs) just totally nuts, because they said, da-da-da-dum, that is not a theme. You cannot make a whole movement on that (laughs) theme because it's just a little lick. But he did. But he did. One famous critic who, who had just totally reamed that piece out about five years later, he apologized profusely. He said, coming out, listening to the Fifth Symphony for the first time, he was so he was so excited and upset that he said, I tried to put on my hat and I couldn't find my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Bob, to your the second question about, you know, everybody knows the da-da-da-da, right? But um, I prefer another really amazing point in any symphony, and that is what Beethoven does between the third and fourth movements. There are four sections to the symphony, and the way that he gets from the third movement into the final movement is just extraordinary. Jan, why don't you just set it up very quickly, and then we'll hear it. What he does, he's going to have this explosion of triumph in the finale, But he very brilliantly decided, if I just go from the third movement directly into that, it's going to be just too abrupt and too, it's not going to have a full effect. So I'm going to go into a fog instead. To put these movements together, I'm going to pull the music back into this kind of mysterious, whispering, throbbing fog. And out of that emerges this burst of glory Yeah, here's this weird fog, like we don't know where we are, what's happening. And he does such a good job of building it here. Building anticipation, suspense. And then... And it must have been just a shock for the audience, like, you know, like whipping through like some kind of 
tornado there in that final movement. What he did in the Fifth Symphony was to simplify everything, simplify and intensify. So this piece is just like a blunt instrument. It is powerful and, you know, sort of force of nature, inescapable music that does not have the formal complexity of the Third Symphony. It's much more direct, and that, that is the secret of its power. Let's take a break, uh, come right back, and um, we'll get to Beethoven's final years, his failing health, and uh, some of the more uh, spiritual music that he wrote. And you're listening to All Songs Considered from NPR Music. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com songs to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Support also comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Brewer Terrence Sullivan shares how brewing beer is often a science, but to achieve the right flavor profile, it can also be an art. The science is the process of making the actual beer, and and the art form comes from the brewer of literally weaving in different hops. They're just adding some nice little zest to it. To learn more, go to sierranevada.com. Must be 21 years or older. Please drink responsibly. It's All Songs Considered. I'm Bob Boylan. We're celebrating here at NPR Music Beethoven's 250th birthday, uh, which is December 17th. And we have a series of very special tiny desk concerts you can go watch. Uh, And this is the All Songs Considered Beethoven takeover. Yes, and I'm here, <laughs> and I'm here with NPR Music's Tom Heisinger, and uh, writer and composer Jan Swafford. He's the author of the book Beethoven: Anguish and Triumph. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, we should mention that Jan uh, has a brand new book out that just came out last week about Mozart. So Jan has been busy. And more Beethoven at our website, if you're inclined. There's Beethoven at 250, a page that collects all of the many great Beethoven stories and interviews we've done at NPR over the years. Also, if you want more information on the recordings that we're featuring on this show, you can just head to nprmusic.org and look for All Songs Considered, where you will find a playlist of this music. So lots of Beethoven to celebrate the 250th birthday. So we're coming to the what's called the late years. Um, he's in his mid to late 40s now. We're in the latter part of the 1810s. And Beethoven fans always speak about this late music as if it's something uh, almost spiritual. Describe uh, the characters of this music from his later years. His hearing had declined to being functionally deaf. His bodily miseries had increased, and they were never anything other than miserable. Uh, he had um, gone through this terrible ordeal, dragging his late brother's son away from the mother and court battles and all that. So he was sunk in himself. A lot of people thought he'd gone crazy. And all those things, I think, functioned together to create a late music that is held kind of in awe. But it's not only because it has, at times, a a kind of new kind of depth of spirituality. I won't say depth, a new kind of flavor, a new kind of spiritual personality that had never been heard before, uh, that is deeply inward, because this is a man who by this point could no longer hear music except inside his own head. 
But also in the late music, everything expanded. He did everything more. His music became more complex and more simple, more funny and more serious. There's a more poetic sense that every piece is almost, can be in some of the big important pieces, almost the whole of life from top to bottom and light to dark and despair to joy within one piece. It is interesting that Beethoven, like you mentioned, Beethoven seems to move inward within himself in this kind of introspective phase, yet the music, oddly enough, seems to expand and move outward in this kind of weird transcendent way, like as if it's trying to answer some questions of almost cosmic proportions. And and as you mentioned, Jan, Sometimes he does all these things in just one movement of one piece. And I think we should take a few little toe dips into the second movement of this two-movement sonata, his final piano sonata, Opus 111, that he wrote around 1821-1822. And we're going to dip into the arietta. That's the second movement. The first movement really sets it up because it's very dark, and it sets us up for this extraordinary second movement. And let's just hear just a few seconds uh, of the very opening of it, which just opens like some kind of prayerful hymn. So simple, very moving music, and we go along, and about seven minutes into this movement, something really crazy seems to happen. It's as if Beethoven suddenly invents jazz. Just you, you shake your head and and go, what what just happened there? I mean, this is really a full seven or eight decades before the arrival of Scott Joplin and, and Ragtime, and um, it sounds as if <laughs> Beethoven is playing a, a boogie-woogie. And then, Jan, let's dip into the closing moments of this movement of Beethoven's final piano sonata, which gets at a little bit of what we were talking about a moment ago, This some, somehow this kind of transcendent music that goes off into another realm. Finally, at the end, he starts getting into these trills, which to me are a kind of celestial light um, that ends the piece in the uh, with a kind of the opening th- chorale theme idea taken into a transcendent celestial realm. I mean, those are cliched words, but what else could you say about this music? ¶¶ 
And there you have Light Beethoven in a nutshell from the deep spirituality of the hymn-like opening to the goofiness of that middle variation to the transcendence of the end. And there is life encompassed in the course of a movement. I'm going to just say that I find it so hard to comprehend how someone who is deaf can write music like this. And then the sadness of someone who could write music like this not ever be able to hear it. <laughs> well, there you have one of the reasons that Beethoven became a mythical figure. He became the model. You know, the, 19th, the romantic 19th century developed a kind of cult of genius as, some, as a kind of demigod, something beyond everyday humanity. And Beethoven was partly for the reason you just said, the kind of founding member of the romantic ideal of genius. I'm always fascinated how much we know about this man. And we, and we know he was sort of a grump. We know he was sort of a, a bit of a jerk. Uh, he didn't maintain relationships. He never married. He was paranoid. He fought with his friends. He, uh, but he made astonishing, passionate music. And those two things seem at odds with one another in many ways. Well, that's part of the romantic myth of Beethoven, too. It's this, <laughs> it's this radical divide between who you are as a person and what your music is what your art is. And, you know, somebody knew Beethoven when he was in, in, in his middle years said if you met him on the street, you would think he was just another drunk. <laughs> he could only view other people, the rest of the world, through his own lens. He had no understanding of other people's hopes and desires. And he only understood humanity and human emotion through himself, but that he understood profoundly. Uh, and that's why, as a composer, he could speak for the whole world, the whole of humanity, even though he, he didn't like humanity as individuals that much. And as he said in a letter to a publisher, he said, everything I do outside music is badly done and stupid. And he was right. <laughs> Although, even, you know, near the end of his life, you know, he still had that sense of humor that he seemed to have had throughout much of his life, even though, you know, he struggled and everything. He seems to have had nicknames for almost all of his friends, including this one guy, Schupanzig, who was the leader of a string quartet who actually played and premiered many of Beethoven's string quartets. And this Schupanzig guy was rotund, shall we say. And I think Beethoven wrote one little song about him, about him not being able to fit through an alleyway, if I remember right. But then there's this <laughs> there's this song I want to lay on you, and it's called Azel Aller Azel, which translates to ass of all asses. In the song about the alleyway, he, re he refers to Schupanzig as an Azel. So this, this song here, Azel Aller Azel, probably also aimed at Schupanzig. But let's just hear it. It's just uh, 30 seconds long. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Ass of all asses. We talk about Beethoven's popularity and and uh Unlike now, where anyone can hear his music on a record or stream uh, their music anywhere in the world, during his life, people couldn't hear his music unless they could afford to go to a concert hall or somewhere, or maybe they got sheet music and someone would play it. Was he famous outside the classical music world, uh, outside of Germany? By the middle of his life, he was pretty much famous worldwide. One of his late commission offers came from Boston, 
but his music spread his his work spread mainly in sheet music, and mostly played by amateurs because not that many people got to hear him play. So you know, some people say Beethoven was a rock star of the time. It doesn't make any. It doesn't work that way. Rock star is a function of modern media, which you can hear anything anytime. But you could say that he kind of became a rock star as recently as just a hundred years ago or so. I just made a little list. I thought I would give you guys about just where the Ninth Symphony has been and has shown up in our culture in around the globe, actually, for good and for bad. Uh, as you probably know, in the early 40s, the Third Reich co-opted the Ninth Symphony, and it was appropriated as a, a kind of a triumphal anthem, and it was played on Hitler's birthday. Uh, in 1959, if you can believe this, the Ninth was performed in the People's Republic of China, and the text to the Ode to Joy was translated into Mandarin, and of course, Beethoven was later rejected in China when the Cultural Revolution came about in the 70s. Also in the 70s, the protesters against the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile used the Ninth Symphony uh, as an ode. In 1972, it became the official anthem of Europe. And then let's not forget when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, the Ninth Symphony was there too with Leonard Bernstein. Again, for protest, the students in Tiananmen Square, they drowned out the government propaganda broadcasts with recordings of the Beethoven Ninth. And even as recently as just a few years ago, the Occupy Wall Street people used the Ninth Symphony. And then in popular culture, of course, you know, you could go on for a long time, but just a, a couple on either uh, side of the spectrum. There's the ninth in Clockwork Orange. The polar opposite would probably be Beethoven's piano music in the uh, comic strip Peanuts, who's a favorite composer of Schroeder, who plays his little toy piano. So it's been all over the place. Well, Beethoven wrote the ninth as a kind of great ceremonial piece, um, almost transcending the concert hall that that is there to, to remind humanity of the the ideals of the Enlightenment, of brotherhood, and um, by that point, his, his, his earlier idea that heroes like Napoleon were going to bring better societies, they'd all failed and Napoleon had gone down. So what Beethoven wanted to say using Schiller's poem in the Ninth is what's going to save humanity is, is love and brotherhood and uh, sisterhood and marriage and groups of people getting together to to make things happen, that we're under God, but we can't depend on God for this. We have to do it ourselves. These are very simple ideals, but they were, at the time he wrote this, Europe was basically a police state where you could get arrested for speaking the word freedom, and I'm not kidding. And he wanted to keep this dream of freedom and uh, brotherhood, human, the brotherhood of humanity, alive. Simple ideas, but very, very important ones. So he, he, he encompassed that by this theme in the Ninth Symphony finale. Da, 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 dee, dee, da, 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 da. The whole point of it is that it's the simplest thing in the world. Anybody can sing it. And he took this very simple kind of folk-like tune and, and made it into something absolutely exalted. And that is a democratic statement in a way, a statement of ultimate democracy and human brotherhood, that the lowest shall become the highest. Jan Swafford, thank you so much. This is a, I've learned so much today. I really appreciate uh, your insight into this amazing human. Thank you. Thank you, Tom Heisinger. That was beautiful. Thank you, Bob. It's been great to have a Beethoven takeover with you. And Jan, thank you so much. Thanks, both guys. 
Jan Swafford is the author of Beethoven, Anguish and Triumph, as well as a brand new book on Mozart. Tom Heisiger covers classical music and much, much more for NPR Music. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's All Songs Considered. Songwriter Phoebe Bridgers wrote a song about her dad and their complicated relationship. And when that song got a Grammy nomination, things got weird. We have never discussed the song. And then the other day he called me and was like, so we got a Grammy for our song. (laughs) And I was like, oh, man. (laughs) Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.